Well, today we're starting a new sermon series. Over the next four weeks, I wanted to discuss the two ordinances or sacraments that Christ gave to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two ceremonies symbolize essential Christian truths. Baptism marks the one-time entrance of a person into the Christian community, the church, whereas the Lord's Supper is an ongoing remembrance of the death of Christ, which, of course, is the basis of our salvation. And so we're going to devote two weeks to each one of these ordinances. Now, you might wonder, why are you devoting you know, a whole month of preaching about this? Well, I think it's incredibly important for the life of the church. And let me just give you two reasons here. could probably do more. But just to really hone in on why we're focusing on that, let me give you two reasons. First, Jesus commanded us to observe the ordinances. That should probably be enough right there, huh? But Jesus commanded us. The ordinances are not optional. They're not incidental. They're a very important part of the Christian life, both individually and the church as a whole. We need to take them seriously. For some of us, we may not see them as essential or important. And I hope that this series will change how you see the ordinances. Perhaps for others, you you recognize them, but maybe it's not talked about enough, and and you just need a good, firm reminder. Well, I hope the, the series will do that in your life as well. So, Jesus commanded us to observe the ordinances. Second, the ordinances are incredibly rich and meaning. Friends, they're not just rituals that we do because we need to do something here on a Sunday morning or whatever, but they are loaded with important truths, often weaving in Old Testament themes that are very significant and all pointing to Christ. Moreover, Scripture discusses them quite a bit. So, for example, the word baptism, did you know that that word in either its noun or verbal form appears a hundred times, almost a hundred times in the New Testament? That's quite a lot of emphasis. Very important. Now, granted, there is disagreement within Christian groups or among Christian groups about how do we understand these ordinances. And we'll touch on some of them along the way. But I really and truly believe that Scripture gives a very clear and coherent message about these things that are so important and valuable for the church. And I hope that as we come away from this series, you'll see the real richness of these ordinances and why we practice them. This past week I kept thinking about, I was doing a Bible study when I lived in New York, and I always remember this lady said to me after I taught a message about the deity of Christ, and how she said to me later, you know, I always grew up reciting the Nicene Creed. And I never knew what it was about the whole time. And I think that's a danger sometimes, isn't it? That we can sit in the church and recite things and go go through things and observe things and never really understand what is the real significance of these things. Amen? So I hope that's not going to be the case after we walk through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, before going further, let me just say a quick word about terminology. In other words, should we refer to baptism as, and the Lord's Supper as ordinances or sacraments? 
Now, I just said there's no definitive answer um, because the Bible doesn't specifically say. But here's a little information on the differences, just because I know some of you are coming from different backgrounds and you're wondering, I've heard sacraments, heard ordinances, what's going on? Is there a difference there? Well, here's just a little bit of background. Roman Catholics refer to them as sacraments and other ceremonies as sacraments. And they understand them to impart, that these sacraments impart grace with the ceremony, even if the participant lacks faith. Okay? Protestants would disagree with this notion, but some of them would retain the usage of the word sacrament, even though they would understand that it doesn't automatically dispense grace. Other Protestants want to, do, to avoid the misguided notion of automatic grace, okay? And so they want to use a different word, hence the word ordinances, since Christ ordained these ceremonies. So in my view, it's fair to use either term, sacraments or ordinances, just as long as you understand, if you use the word sacrament, that it doesn't automatically dispense grace, but it does matter how we receive these. Amen? Does that make sense? So for the sake of clarity and just for convenience sake, I am going to use the word ordinances, but I just want to make sure in case you're coming at it again from a different background, you know where we're coming from in this series. So this morning, I want to focus on baptism. And quite simply, just going to do a real simple message here, I want to focus on two questions, two questions here today. First, what is the origin of baptism and who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? All right. So let's dive right in. Bad pun. You're supposed to, you're supposed to laugh there. Bad, dive right in. With the first question, what is the origin of baptism? All right. Baptism didn't just fall out of the sky. didn't just appear out of nowhere. There's always a history to things, and it's important to know these. All right. Now, usually the, there is the case of an Old Testament background that's really pivotal and foundational. But with baptism, it's really not the case. Okay? We see in the Old Testament, if you see, look through the Old Testament, you see that there are washings and cleansings that were part of the sacrificial system. And, uh, you know, for example, the priest would be washed when they were consecrated to their office, or if people were ceremonially defiled before they went and performed their sacrifices, they might go through various washings. But there really is no sort of counterpart of baptism in the Old Testament. So we really wait until the New Testament and an individual named John the Baptist when he shows up on the scene. Okay? Now, who is this John the Baptist? Well, before Jesus comes on and begins his ministry, John began preaching and calling people to repent. The nation of Israel had really been without a prophetic voice for centuries. And they were languishing spiritually under hypocritical, selfish leadership um, who were misinterpreting the Scriptures and leading people away from the Lord rather than to the Lord. And so John burst on the scene not too long before Jesus and he calls the nation to repent. Now let's stop for a second just ask, make sure we know what the word repentance is. Repentance includes sorrow and remorse that you've done something wrong, but it goes beyond it. A person can be sorry 
that they got caught, right? A person can be sorry maybe that they've hurt somebody else. But repentance not only includes those things, but it goes beyond it to say there's going to be a decisive change. Right? You're going to change. And you're going to turn away from sin and you're going to start wanting to follow God's will. Do you see the difference? There's a lot of people who are very sorry about stuff, but John was calling them to repent, to have a decisive, lasting change in their conduct. Not saying they're perfect, but something happened where they were broken over their sins and they're going to start walking in God's ways. And so therefore, John, when he's preaching to the masses, he looks out in the crowd and he tells the Roman soldiers, he says, look, stop extorting money from people. He doesn't just say, man, guys, you've got to be sorry for doing that. No, he says, stop taking money that doesn't belong to you. Or the tax collectors, he tells them to stop swindling. So it's an inward change that leads to an outward lasting Behavior change. Does that make sense? And so, John was calling people to repent, but he also baptized people. Now his title, John the Baptist, throws us off, I think, sometimes. Because he wasn't the first Baptist in a denomination, okay? He wasn't the first Baptist, and you know we can claim as our forefather, whatever. no. Literally, in the Greek, it means John the baptizer. He was known for his baptizing. And he did this. You say, why did he baptize? He did this because baptism was an expression of repentance. Baptism was a demonstration of a repentance that had already taken place in in a person's life. And it was a one-time thing to show sort of the same thing with repentance, that it's a decisive turning Likewise, repent, or excuse me, baptism was a decisive, one-time display of turning to God. So John was very important. His message was important. His baptism was important. But as significant as John was, you know what? John was just preparatory. Because, see, John was preparing the ground for someone greater Namely, the Messiah. Right? He was preparing the people for the Messiah who was to come. He knew that he was nothing and that he was trying to get people ready for the one who was everything. And so, when Jesus comes on the scene, then this leads to the next phase when we're talking about the history, the origin of baptism that's really significant, and that's Jesus' relationship to John's baptism. Because, friends, did you know that in all four Gospels, it is mentioned that Jesus was baptized by John. That means that's important when it shows up in all four Gospels. Because you see, at this event, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and maybe Mike talked about it last week, I don't know, but it was the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus in His humanity to begin His ministry. And it's interesting that Jesus would even participate in this baptism, right? Is your mind asking, why did Jesus do this? He wasn't a sinner. Why did he get baptized? John himself wanted to stop him. He said, what are you doing? I'm not going to baptize you. But he gave in. Well, he was baptized because he stood as our representative. He stood as our representative. He was sinless, but his his baptism symbolized taking our place. It marks his solidarity with his people whom he came to save. 
So here we get a glimpse that baptism, we've had this great foundation from John. He set the foundation, but baptism was going to be more than just repentance. It was going to be added some new and important significance, and it was going to be connected with Jesus and His messianic ministry of redemption. Are you getting it? Jesus was going to usher in a new phase of what baptism meant and who should be baptized. And that leads to my second question. Who should be baptized? So the next time Jesus then is connected with water baptism, it comes at the end of Matthew's Gospel. I want you to turn there. This is the passage typically called the Great Commission. It occurs after Jesus' resurrection, where he gives the church its marching orders. This is what we're supposed to be about as a church. So if you're looking in the Bible, in front of you, page 835, Jesus gathers up his disciples after his resurrection, and this is what he tells them, verses 18 and following. He says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus, he's been given all authority, and he tells us, the church, to go make disciples of all nations. That's what our marching orders are, is to make disciples, someone who is like Christ. And this leads to the all-important question. I hope you're paying attention to this. How does someone become a disciple of Christ? Well, to start, notice I said to start, there must be conversion, salvation. And Scripture points to two essential elements of conversion. One is repentance, what we just spoke about, and faith. So again, you see this continuity between John and Jesus. So Jesus reiterates that there must be repentance. When Jesus begins, and and now he talks about faith. So when Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the first words that Mark records from Jesus' mouth says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we must repent of our sins and believe in the gospel. There must be repentance. There must be, like we said, this definitive change in a person's heart where they're sorry about their sins, they're remorseful about their sins, and there's this breaking of wanting to do God's will and obey His Word. And so when the church comes along and they take this mantle of the Great Commission, you see them proclaiming repentance to people. Peter in Acts 2, when he gives this great message at Pentecost, he tells the crowd to repent. In Acts 3.19, Peter tells the crowd, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 17.30, when Paul is preaching, this time he's preaching to Athenian Gentiles, same message. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. So repentance is essential to conversion. We need to turn away from our sin, but we also need to turn to something. And that's what faith is about, right? Turning to Christ, believing in Christ, to believe that He is God in human flesh, that He came and He lived on this earth a sinless life and He died on the cross for our sins 
as our substitute, like we just talked about, right? What baptism, his baptism symbolized. He was going to be our substitute to die in our place. And he rose again so that we could have the hope of eternal life. To see that death was not the final answer. We will rise as we just sang about. Amen? Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what do I do to be saved? And what did he tell him? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So friends, I want you to follow me here. It's really important. Conversion occurs when a person repents and believes. There is no salvific power, redemptive power, in baptism itself or any other human work. Baptism itself, very significant as we're going to talk about, but just so we're kind of clearing the ground here, has no bearing on conversion. Salvation is entirely God's grace as a person realizes that they are sinful, they need forgiveness, and that that forgiveness and the means of that has been provided for through what Jesus did on the cross. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. Parentheses. It's not because of baptism. It's not because of confirmation or anything else. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So friends, conversion occurs with repentance and faith. Is everybody clear about that? That's the first step. But there is more to discipleship than conversion. Are you with me? Jesus gave the great commandment, or excuse me, the great commission, did he say, go and make converts of all nations? He didn't. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is someone who is like Christ, who is becoming like Him. And so there must be conversion to begin that process, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. And this is where baptism plays an essential role after repentance and faith in Christ. If you're still with me in Matthew, remember it said there, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So those two phrases, talking about baptizing and teaching, they elaborate on what it means to make disciples. They, they specify the means in which discipleship occurs, not conversion. So baptism is a prerequisite to discipleship and it demonstrates it. Baptism is our public declaration that a conversion has taken place. And it's very important. It's very important. Very important. It would have been an oxymoron in the early church for someone to walk around and say, I'm an unbaptized disciple of Christ. It just didn't exist. I'm not saying it didn't. It just, for their thinking, that's not what the Scriptures teach. 
Baptism isn't necessary for conversion, but it is necessary for discipleship. Does that make sense? I think the great illustration is the wedding band. A wedding band symbolizes that a person is married, right? That doesn't make you married. We know someone can lose it. It doesn't affect their marital status. But when two people get married, they exchange rings to show that this is a public declaration of one's marriage, right? It's an outward display of an inward reality. And just to give you a free piece of marital advice, if your spouse really wants you to wear your ring and you take it off and you say, I don't want to wear that ring anymore, look out. (laughs) Not the brightest move you can make. You're going to say, oh, I'm happily married to this one, but I don't want to wear a ring. For some reason, we find that very disingenuous, don't we? Because it's a public declaration. Again, it doesn't make you married. But it's a public declaration, an outward symbol of an inward reality. And it's the same thing with baptism. It's an outward display of an inward reality. Yes, a person can be converted. They can become a Christian and not be baptized. It's technically possible. We know that. Something could happen to them before they hit the baptism waters. But it is a symbol of conversion where you are telling Christ, I'm married to you. We're the bride of Christ, and you're the bridegroom. You have commanded that we are baptized to declare our faith in you, our allegiance to you. We take it seriously. So again, baptism isn't necessary for conversion. Is everybody clear about that? But it is necessary for discipleship to become like Christ. It's the first step. And there's a tension here, isn't there? There's a tension. And Christians fall into the struggle of one or the other. There are some who emphasize so strongly that that baptism has nothing to do with conversion. And they're right. it It has no bearing on conversion. But they emphasize that so strongly that they make baptism just sort of insignificant, right? But we're seeing here that it is significant. It's a command of Christ, and we're supposed to do it. And then on the other side, there can be the mistaken notion of equating salvation somehow with baptism, right? That somehow you have to be baptized to be saved. And that's not correct either. Let me just point out a couple differences with a couple different groups here when it comes to baptism. Again, I know you folks might have some different backgrounds and experiences. You might have questions with friends, family members, neighbors who are part of these different groups. I just want to talk about them real quickly. The first difference is, not here to disparage other groups, but just to, these are the differences, and I want you guys to understand as best we can. The first difference is baptismal regeneration, which holds that baptism itself regenerates or converts a person into a Christian. Now, this would be held by groups like the Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox. So in the Roman Catholic view, for example, they would add that there's a qualification that that as long as there's nothing in the way when that person receives baptism, that that baptism ceremony makes them a Christian. 
Now, if they're an atheist and they don't want to be baptized, they're not saying that. But they're saying as long as there's nothing in the way, there doesn't have to be an act of faith or repentance or anything, as long as there's nothing in the way, the baptism itself regenerates and converts that person into a Christian. So hopefully you've seen, by what we've talked about here today, baptism has no salvific power. And it can be is mistaken, and it's spiritually dangerous to think that you're assuming that you're a Christian because of a baptism if there wasn't true repentance and an act of faith. Are you listening to me? Yeah, I'm not here to disparage anybody, but these are eternal consequences. This is eternal life that we're talking about, and we need to listen to what the Scripture says. Amen? Second difference is infant baptism. Some Protestants would disagree with baptismal generation, but affirm that it's right for children, for, for children of believing parents to be baptized. And they believe that such children are part of the covenant community, though they rightly understand that you need to come to saving faith later in life. Okay? This would be held by various groups of the Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Reformed churches, and so on. Now they would point to, and I think their strongest piece of evidence, is that when you look in the book of Acts, you see several cases of what are called household baptisms, where the entire household is baptized. And they would argue that there must surely have been infants present in that house who were brought into this, and they did not have an active saving faith, but they were baptized, not to regenerate them, but to be brought up into the community of faith and that later on down the line, they would have a profession of faith themselves. Do you see the difference? So I'm not equating the two, the baptismal regeneration and infant baptism. Very important difference. But this would differ from what I've been saying so far here this morning. So what would we say? Well, when you look in the book of Acts, there are nine instances of baptism. Nine instances. And I think very clearly, in most cases... It's clearly after repentance and faith with adults. When you have these several cases of the whole household being baptized, in three of the four cases, it explicitly says that everyone present believed. Okay, It's qualified. So it says everyone in the house was baptized, but it also qualifies and says everyone believed. Okay, So in Acts 16, this is a famous passage, Paul and the Philippian jailer, it says very clearly, he preaches to everyone in the household. Right? Then everyone was baptized. And then afterward it says, everyone rejoiced who had believed the gospel. So I, I think we all would agree that an infant can't rejoice, can't believe in the gospel. They don't have the mental faculties yet to do that. And so Paul preached to those in the household and apparently none of them were infants. The only example that doesn't mention the family's faith is Lydia's household in Acts 16, 14, and 15. Where it says the whole family, where it says the whole family was baptized. Lydia believed, but it doesn't speak of the rest of her family. But I would say in light of these numerous other passages, you know, eight or so other passages, and especially it's the same section, you know, it's the same section with the Philippian jailer where it does talk about everyone's explicit faith. 
I think it seems more likely that the presence of faith was understood, though it wasn't explicitly stated every time there. So in my opinion, the evidence rests strongly on the side of baptism following belief. Okay? So let me close where I began the sermon. I just want to stress the importance of baptism, guys. As I've said here probably a hundred times already, it has no bearing on conversion. I don't want anyone to walk out of here thinking, oh, I've got to be baptized to be saved. I'm not saying that. Right? It's all about trusting Christ, believing in Christ, repenting of your faith, of your sins, excuse me. But it is essential to discipleship, to becoming like Christ. And scripturally speaking, you can't be a disciple and disobey baptism. It's a command. And my prayer is that everyone here would examine themselves in light of these ordinances that Jesus has given us here. So most importantly, just ask yourself, have I been truly converted? Have I truly been broken over my sins, repented, decisively resolved to say, you know what, God, I know I'm not going to live perfectly. But I know I'm not living to please you right now. There are things in my life and things in my heart that displease and dishonor you, things that I do, things that I don't do. And I want to change, God. And I'm coming to you today broken. I'm just asking God for your grace to help me be repentant. And I want to put my faith in Christ because He is the one who can forgive me of my sins. That's the starting point. That's how someone is converted. Maybe you're here today and that's you. And I hope that's your prayer. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. And I certainly was lost until Jesus came and saved me, not because of anything good in me, but because of His graciousness and just simply repenting of my sins and trusting Him. And if you have been converted, Scripture says, as we've been saying here, to declare your faith in Christ, to put on your wedding band, so to speak, not hiding it, in the Chester drawer there, but to declare to the Lord, you are a Christian. And not to wait. Not to wait till this situation blows over in life or you have this question resolved or until you finish reading the New Testament, all these things that we have. There are no qualifications other than you believe and you trust. You go right to the waters to declare your faith. And we also just encourage you. You might be sitting there thinking, wow, that's a lot today. I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> I'm unsure. I get it. That's okay. That's okay. Will you promise me this? Start thinking about it. Praying about it. Start studying the Scriptures with an open mind and saying, Lord, I just want to go where the evidence leads when I start reading your scriptures and whatever the Holy Spirit starts putting on my heart, I'm going to follow with that. That we would be soft clay in the Master's hand. Amen? Amen. That's all that any of us could ever ask. All that any of us could ever ask. The other day, you may not even agree with what I've said as far as infant baptism or all these. Okay, let's go to the scriptures. Go to the scriptures. Be teachable, moldable. Amen? Let me share a great illustration of this. We'll close out. Adoniram Judson was the first Protestant missionary sent from North America in 1812. He and his wife, 
and they got on a ship in Massachusetts, and they sailed to India. They eventually settled in Burma, and he had a remarkably difficult but fruitful ministry. God used him to lead many people there to Christ, and he was a gifted linguist. He helped translate uh, the Bible into Burmese, and it's a very difficult language. Now, on his initial voyage, lasted four months. Can you imagine? We, they had some tough things they had to deal with back then. Imagine being on a boat for four months. No cruise liner, you know, I mean, good night. Four months. Well, he redeemed the time. He and his wife studied the Greek New Testament very intensely to better understand the doctrine of baptism. They were raised in very godly congregationalist homes, but they questioned their denomination's view aligned with the New Testament. They came to the conclusion that baptism was intended for believers. So when they arrived in India, they were baptized in line with their newfound convictions. You say, okay, that's, that's great. You know what? It was remarkable, that step that they did. You know why? Because in essence, what Judson had to do was to call, or not call back then, but to let the Congregationalist Mission Board know, I can no longer accept your support because of the conviction I have about baptism. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Can you imagine four months on a boat? You arrive there. You have this conviction about baptism because of the scriptures. And you basically cut yourself off from the funding. What are you going to do now? But friends, I think that's a great heart attitude, isn't it? Let me encourage you to follow their example in taking seriously the subject of baptism. To look at what scripture says. And to follow what Jesus commands. Amen? I'm just going to open the floor up here for a discussion. And uh, after I pray that the Lord put something on your heart to bring up or a comment you'd like to make, let's, uh, let's follow the Lord's lead in that. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word here as we've talked about what you've given us, Lord, this ordinance of baptism. And Father, we pray that we would just be faithful. God, we are a people who like to go to one side or the other. Lord, we like to trumpet sometimes that baptism has nothing to do with conversion and then all of a sudden it doesn't really become significant. And then there's the other danger, Lord, of making baptism something that it is not. It has nothing to do with conversion. So we shouldn't fall into that mistake either. So Lord, my prayer today is that you would help lead us and guide us by your word to navigate, not going to the right or the left, but going straight down the middle of what you've told us. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who's never truly understood what it is to be converted, to become a Christian, God, I pray that you would show them that today. Help them to understand that it is about repenting of their sins and believing in Christ. They can become a Christian. And Lord, I also pray for our church, for those gathered here today, some who aren't here today, the Lord, all of us would examine ourselves if we've never been baptized in a way that Scripture describes here, Lord, that we would want to be obedient to your word if you're impressing that on our hearts this morning. And Lord, if we have questions, if we're not sure, Lord, the last thing I pray is that people would do something out of an emotional thing. Lord, may they be convinced by your Scriptures and go to your word and study and see what the word of God says. Lord, as your word speaks, 
that they would follow, and that they would obey. Lord, we thank you for your time that you've given us here to hopefully break off some of the word of life, be fed in our spirits, and be challenged and changed. Lord, as we talk about some of these things as a church, may you continue to edify and encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.